This is Jared O'Brien for the Christians Engaging Culture podcast. Christians Engaging Culture exists to equip Christians to give a faithful answer in everyday cultural conversations and to turn those conversations to the gospel. Over the past months, we have been exploring how Christians can understand the world around them in a series called Getting a World That Doesn't Get It. Over the next three weeks, we'll be looking at the topic of euthanasia. In this week's podcast, we are listening to a lecture by Callum Miller given in 2019 for RZIM. Miller comprehensively explores euthanasia and looks at how Christians should respond. You can find more resources on the topic of euthanasia at our website, cec.stthomas.org.au. Well, I'm going to very quickly now um, introduce Dr. Callum Miller. Um, who I've already set up for with one very difficult question on the panel, for which I'm sure he's about to thank me. Um, he is a research fellow at the Oxford Centre for Christian Apologetics. Um, he has a real heart and passion for some of the very difficult um, moral issues, especially around life and death issues, to which he gives an inordinate amount of thought and is um, a wonderful person to have around, partly um, to educate um, those of us who need ongoing education, as well as being able to communicate it at a more popular level. Callum, we're so glad you could join us here today. We're really great to have you on board. Uh, sadly, you'll notice there's this very sad tendency amongst some of our younger team to start growing beards. Um, this is a problem that we're, we're coming to tackle. Um, I always thought one of Margaret Thatcher's greatest insights into culture was she would never appoint anyone to the cabinet with a beard, um, feeling they always had something to hide, um, and there could be something in that. But even though he has a beard, we do trust him. Uh, let's welcome up Callum as he comes to take the next issue for us. Okay, thank you so much. Um, it's wonderful to be back in England. I was lucky enough to be in Australia for the last couple of weeks and got back uh, Thursday night. Um, the good news is that while I was over there, I had a great time. I met with a number of people working in advocacy and politics on life kind of issues, um, and we made a lot of kind of productive conversation. I learned a lot. I had a wonderful time out there. The bad news is that this is me with a tan, um, which is extremely distressing to say the least. I don't know about you, but I've learned a lot already today from the talks, in particular Sharon's talk. Um, as a medical doctor myself, I was flattered and surprised to learn that we have emotional intelligence. Um, we also learned that mushrooms have the same consistency as brains. Now, as someone who is a pretty fussy eater and who's worked in neuroscience in medical school, that actually taught me more about mushrooms than it did about brains. But nevertheless, a very informative and useful set of talks so far. The lesson here is that doctors are quite a morbid bunch, and I'm going to be talking about something reasonably morbid today. We're talking about ending life, we're talking about killing. And clarity about this is actually important, because often these debates are debates where we don't have clarity, where we don't talk about the real truth of what's going on. And so I want to begin by defining terms and defining exactly what we're talking about. So my talk today is on euthanasia, which is a similar term to assisted suicide, but they are slightly different. What euthanasia means is a doctor or sometimes a non-medical professional killing a patient for some grounds, whether because the patient wants to be killed or because they are in extreme agony or on some other generally compassionate grounds. Assisted suicide is similar, but it involves the healthcare professional setting up the equipment and getting everything in place so that the patient themselves can press the button or take the pill to kill themselves. 
Fundamentally, this is about ending life, and it's about killing. And one of the reasons this is important is because often the debate in Parliament and in the media and in politics and so on has changed to a, a debate from euthanasia or assisted suicide to actually speak about assisted dying. Now, one thing that's interesting about this is that we already have assisted dying. It's called palliative care. Assisted dying is helping someone to die in a dignified way, someone who is already dying, giving them the resources and comfort and support they need to ensure that they do so in as pain-free a way as possible and in as dignified a way as possible. Assisted dying is something we already have. But what people are wanting to introduce is assisted suicide in particular or euthanasia in some cases. And this is quite different. This is the deliberate ending of someone's life by killing them or by helping them to commit suicide. And so, of course, assisted dying is quite offensive to people who already work in the area of palliative care, who already help people to die, unfortunately, um, in the most pain-free and as dignified way as possible. So thinking about the world more generally, euthanasia and or assisted suicide, it depends on the country, but one or two of these are legal in a few places around the world at the moment. So places like Canada, parts of the United States, Holland, Belgium, Luxembourg, uh, Victoria, Australia has just legalized it and will be implementing that soon. But it's only in a few countries at present, and most countries, and in fact many international organizations, have condemned uh, the introduction of euthanasia into these countries. But it's actually something that we're not far off from in the UK. You might have been keeping up with this debate in the last few years, in which case you'll know that there have been bills periodically every few years trying to introduce euthanasia or assisted suicide to the UK. It's frequently debated all over Europe, frequently in the UK, uh, and in many places they have quite strong laws being proposed. So in Spain, for example, the proposed law explicitly excluded conscientious objection for doctors, saying that if it were legalized, doctors would have to take part in this. And recently, I don't know if you'd heard, but the Royal College of Physicians was asked to have a vote on this. And so they voted, do they think assisted dying should be legalized in the UK? And the results were fairly well publicized around the UK. And the results actually were fairly even. So doctors have a fairly even view of it. Just about the majority who have made their mind up support uh, keeping the law. So they think we should keep the law so that we don't have assisted dying. But a strong minority, 40% of doctors, think that we should have assisted dying in the country. Now, what's interesting about this, firstly, is that it's much less, it's a much smaller proportion than the general population. So if you look at opinion polling in the general population, most people support introducing assisted suicide in the UK. Doctors are significantly more hesitant about it. A second interesting thing about this, though, is that if you ask doctors to essentially put their money where their mouth is and ask them, would you be willing to do this yourself, the numbers change quite drastically. So yes, 40% of doctors think that assisted dying should be legal. But if you look at the number who are willing to actually do it, the number drops quite significantly to only 24%. Only one in four doctors would actually feel comfortable doing it themselves. And there's good evidence, actually, if you look at the psychological literature, and if you look at the literature about where countries have introduced euthanasia or assisted dying, doctors are, in fact, extremely uneasy about doing it. There's something psychologically and intuitively kind of, um, kind of re repelling about engaging this from healthcare professionals. And it causes a lot of them many distress. Well, I said that doctors in general are more hesitant about assisted dying than the population at large. 
But another interesting thing is that this trend is seen even more strongly if we look at particular specialties within medicine, and in particular, palliative care. Palliative care doctors are the people who know most about this area. They're the people whose job it is is to deal with people who are dying and to help them to die in a dignified and comfortable way. And people who understand the vulnerability of people who are dying, people who understand the challenges and difficulties that they face, are by far the most opposed group in the UK to assisted suicide. So if you look at the number of palliative care doctors who support a change in the law to permit assisted dying, it's only 9%. That's a small minority. So those doctors who know these patients best and who understand the challenges involved are by far the people most opposed to changing the law in the UK. It's worth understanding where we are in history to see where these kind of challenges come from, where did these laws come from, where is this kind of worldview coming from that thinks that assisted suicide would be something that we should have. Euthanasia actually in the classical world and in many parts of the country outside of, sorry, many parts of the world outside the West, find that euthanasia is okay. Many places around the world think that euthanasia is fine, uh, and in particular in history, euthanasia or helping someone to die in a dignified way by ending their life early was actually reasonably common. But often Christians are seen as kind of backwards or seen as living in the dark ages because of their moral views about certain things. We're told that Christians are living in the dark ages. And the thing is about this, if we're criticizing a view because of its age, we should actually look at the alternative view. Because actually the alternative view that euthanasia is something that helps society or that assisted suicide is something that helps society is an even older view. And many of the views that Christians are seen as backwards for are actually improvements on much older views which had much less respect for human rights. So Christianity often improves the world with its moral views and certainly has done so historically because the world that Christianity came into was a world that was radically unequal and thought this was a good thing. It was a violent world, a sexist world, a racist world, an ableist world, classist, and so on. Christianity actually made an enormous change to this. One of the things in particular we see about the ancient world, particularly the Greco-Roman world, but also in some countries outside of kind of the Christian kind of world today, is that infanticide was relatively common. And infanticide was especially common for people who were deemed less useful to society. In particular, infanticide was seen as a good thing for female babies and for disabled babies, because it was thought that these people couldn't contribute to society. And we'll see why this is important to the debate about euthanasia throughout the presentation. As I say, with Christianity came a radical new era, a radical new concern for human equality, human dignity, and the sanctity of human life. And this concern has actually underpinned moral progress throughout the past couple of millennia. And in the 20th century, it specifically underpinned the idea of human rights and human equality. Well, after Christianity, when Christianity began to go out of fashion somewhat towards the end of the 19th century, there was another ideology that helped contribute to this, and it was a scientific idea, the idea of Darwinism, that the strongest survive, that there's natural selection where the strongest people who are most able to survive end up surviving and reproducing more to pass on their genes. And this is reasonably well accepted within the scientific mainstream. But along with this went a social ideology, which said that in a way this was a good thing. And so there was this whole idea that it's good that the strongest survive and that the weakest 
don't survive. And many writers in the 19th century, outside of Germany, uh, outside of places where uh, fascist ideology was common, most writers, even in England, many writers, thought that this was a good thing, that we were weeding out the weak and that the stronger were being able to reproduce. And gradually, we would have a race that was the strongest race or the strongest species that we could make it. So social Darwinism was on the rise. Utilitarianism, just this idea that we should essentially be productive, that we should, do, we should not have any absolute moral values, but all we should do is just maximize the happiness in the world. These kind of ideologies were on the rise. And for these ideologies, euthanasia became an attractive option because it's an easy way to get rid of some of the weak people in society. It's an easy way to get rid of a lot of the pain in society. And you can see why people who have a focus on this economic idea of growth and of the strongest people um, staying around, and people who had an idea that we should try our best to make the species the strongest it could be, thought that euthanasia was a good thing. And so early proponents of euthanasia in the UK recommended that we should have euthanasia for what people that they called idiots and those who wasted resources. So Charles Goddard, who was uh, one of the people kind of in charge of this movement, he said that we should have involuntary euthanasia, euthanasia without people asking for it, for idiots, beings having only semblance to human form, unable to enjoy life, and incapable of serving any useful purpose in nature. And of course, this ideology tragically came to a head under Nazism in the mid-20th century. And under Nazism, they particularly argued for euthanasia for useless people, people who didn't contribute much economically. And sometimes these would be disabled people, sometimes they would be newborns. So the Nazis had an enormous euthanasia program for children and newborns. And actually, in some places, children up to the age of three had to be reported uh, by the midwives if they were disabled so that they could be euthanized. Now, shortly after the Second World War, there was a comment on this. Uh, it was a comment by Leo Alexander, who was a formidable physician, uh, writing in the New England Journal of Medicine, one of the top medicine journals in the world to this day. And he said, this is how it happens. And he was commenting on kind of the Nuremberg trials in the aftermath of World War II. It started with the acceptance by doctors of the idea, basic in the euthanasia movement, that there is such a thing as a life not worthy to be lived. This attitude in the beginning referred to the severely and the chronically ill. Gradually, the, the sphere of those to be included was enlarged to, be, to encompass the socially unproductive, the ideologically unwarranted, the racially unwarranted. But it's important to realize that the infinitely small lever from which this entire trend of mind received its impetus, the infinitely small lever that started all of this was its attitude towards the incurably sick that people who had a life not worthy to be lived should be killed and had their lives ended early. Now, one of the things we see if we look at the history of this and if we look at the history of euthanasia and the history of Christianity and the contribution that Christianity has made to our feelings about life and the value of life and about the value of disabled people and about the value of socially unproductive people or economically unproductive people, we can see when we look at this history that actually we are potentially on the edge of something catastrophic. When you see the economic arguments for euthanasia, and when you see that throughout history, without Christianity essentially, societies have been willing to euthanize the socially and economically unproductive, we see that we are on the edge potentially of something which could lead to the loss of many, many lives, even in the West, and many, many lives which don't need to be lost and which shouldn't be lost.
There are some writers in the 20th century who, who I'll get to in a moment, but if you think about euthanasia from an economic perspective, in a way it makes great sense, because we have an increasing lifespan in the West. People are living longer. And with an increasing lifespan, you have very extreme health consequences many times. If you look at the amount of money that's spent on people's lives in the last six months of their life, that's about 50% of the health cost for their entire life. At the end of people's lives, there are extreme economic costs. And because we're living longer, these costs are getting greater. There are other economic arguments for euthanasia, such as the fact that if we euthanize people, we can use their organs. And this sounds very dystopian, and it sounds like a straw man. It sounds like something that's completely crazy and scaremongering, but actually, this has started in Belgium. In Belgium, they have begun using euthanized people for their organs. And you can see that with a changing demographic and with these economic arguments, there's a very powerful case to be made for euthanasia, such that we only have an infinitely small lever, in a sense, holding it back. And it's important to hold on to that barrier holding euthanasia back. So I'll just go back a, a moment. There are some people, actually very influential people, who, who put this fairly forthrightly. So Baroness Mary Warnock, I don't know if many of you have heard of her, she was one of the foremost ethicists of the 20th century, not just in academic ethics, but she was at the front of politics, at the front of policy, uh, very powerful and influential in the English government, and she had a, a huge contribution to much policy about life issues in the UK at the end of the 20th century. And it, so this is not kind of a... a, a kind of maverick, uh, radical fringe kind of ideology or, or proponent of it. But what she says about euthanasia was this, that if you're demented, if you have dementia, you're wasting people's lives, your family's lives, and you're wasting the resources of the NHS. If somebody, somebody absolutely desperately wants to die because they're a burden to their family or the state, then I think they should be allowed to die. There's nothing wrong with feeling that you ought to die for the sake of others, as well as yourself, simply because you are a burden to them, is, is what she's getting at. Jacques Attali, who was a very influential um, social theorist and economist uh, and speaker in France in the 80s, he was a, uh, an assistant and aide to uh, the president of France in the 80s, he says that as soon as man or, or woman goes beyond 60 to 65 years of age, man lives beyond his capacity to produce, and he costs society a lot of money. Euthanasia will be one of the essential instruments of our future societies. And so many theorists, prominent theorists in the late 20th century, have said that euthanasia is something almost inevitable. And it's something that if people are a burden on society, euthanasia absolutely makes sense. But we can see that this ideology actually puts immense pressure on vulnerable people. For one thing, if we kill people in pain, and if we take the kind of convenient, easy way out, in a sense, it will immensely reduce the incentive to develop palliative care. Because one of the main impetuses for palliative care in the 20th century was that life is worth living, and that we should, instead of just taking the easy way out, we should make life better for those people who are in desperate circumstances. If there is an easy way out, the incentive for that is drastically reduced. But also we see that where euthanasia or assisted suicide have been legalized, there's been an increase in suicides generally. It's something that puts pressure on vulnerable people to say, actually, if you feel like your life might not be worth living, I'm not necessarily going to convince you otherwise. Maybe what you should do is in fact end it. 
it does put these pressure on these people. So there's a paper in the Southern Medical Journal uh, by an economist and a bioethicist that found uh, in America where euthanasia and assisted suicide have been legalized, there's been a 6 to 12% increase in suicides generally, and particularly women and older people have been affected by this. These are vulnerable groups in society who are particularly influenced and encouraged to commit suicide because of these laws, because the option is there. And if we look at Oregon, one of the states in the US which has legalized assisted suicide, we see that 40 to 60% of requests for assisted suicide cite the fact that they are a burden on their families as a reason. And one of the most kind of concerning things about this is that this trend is increasing. So you probably can't see it very well from the table that I'm going to put up. But if you look at the last 20 years since euthanasia or since assisted suicide has been legalized in Oregon, the number of people who have cited the fact that they are a burden to their family and friends or caregivers has gone up from 34% in 1998 to 54% uh, in 2018. This is a rapidly increasing trend that people in Oregon are feeling that they have to kill themselves because they are a burden to their families and friends. One of the other things we see in euthanasia and in assisted suicide and in the debates is that there's a slippery slope. Now, you might often have heard of a slippery slope as a fallacy. Uh, sometimes it is a fallacy, but sometimes it is a genuine concern that if we introduce something in a small measure, it will inevitably deepen and it will inevitably become more severe and it will inevitably be something that becomes uh, a part of society that we don't want to see. And that's very much what we've seen with euthanasia and assisted suicide. So initially, the idea of assisted suicide and euthanasia are to keep it very limited to terminal illnesses, to adults, to people who have capacity to make the decision, to keep it a voluntary decision, and to keep it just as assisted suicide rather than euthanasia. In fact, what we see and what we will inevitably see is that it becomes something quite different, that it will be used for chronic illnesses, sometimes for people who aren't ill at all. It will be used for children. It will be used for people who lack capacity, who can't make the decision for themselves and who have the decision made for them. And it will change to euthanasia, where the doctor has to do it themselves. Now, there are many reasons for thinking that this slippery slope is a reality. The first and best reason is that when we look at countries that have legalized it, we see this slippery slope, that it has gone to these lengths. A second argument for thinking that there is this slippery slope is that this is what happens with life issues in general. So if you look at the abortion debate from the 1960s, we initially saw that it would be used for very severe and extreme circumstances, and the people who introduced the bill thought there would be about 14,000 abortions a year at maximum, that it would be only used when there was a severe health risk. In fact, what we've seen in the UK and what we see in the UK now is that there are 200,000 abortions a year, and you can have an abortion up to 24 weeks, two weeks after viability, for any reason at all. And we even think there's probably some cases of sex-selective abortion in there. So this is something that we've seen, that when a policy is introduced, there is actually a huge difficulty in regulating it and keeping its initial intentions. The third reason for the slippery slope is the economic arguments I gave earlier. The fourth reason is the logical arguments, that actually if assisted suicide or euthanasia are fundamentally about autonomy, then it makes no sense to restrict it to these very extreme conditions. If someone thinks that 
autonomy is paramount, and someone should be able to end their life themselves, it makes no sense to put restrictions on that. They should be able to end their life in whatever circumstances they find themselves in, for whatever reason, and with whatever method they choose. And so what we see is that the logical arguments for euthanasia, that autonomy is paramount, actually end up taking you down that slippery slope. And finally, a fifth reason is that campaigners have explicitly said this is what they want. They want euthanasia to be extended into these more controversial areas. I just want to highlight one of the real case, kind of case studies. This is Holland, where euthanasia has been legal for quite some time now. It was officially legalized in 2002. In 1991, before it was officially legalized, it still went on, and they found that about 2% of deaths in Holland were euthanasia or assisted suicide. And actually, 1% of these, or nearly 1%, were without a request for assisted suicide, so they were involuntary. Now, of course, things have got much more extreme. There are 6,000 cases a year in Holland, and this is 4% of all deaths. And a further 12 to 15% of deaths in Holland are from terminal sedation, which is when a patient is essentially put to sleep and then starved to death. This is the reality that we've seen in Holland, even though they initially said that there would be a huge number of safeguards there. In Holland also, we've seen huge political pressure for people to be able to be, uh, able to be euthanized or commit assisted suicide simply because they're tired of life. People who are not ill in any way, people who are perfectly healthy, but they're tired of life. And 20% of Dutch doctors have said that they would do so. We've seen in Holland that about 15 to 20 newborn babies are killed a year simply because they have disabilities which they think the baby would not want to live with. And we've seen a rapid increase in psychiatric patients, people with depression or anorexia, and people with dementia who have undergone euthanasia and assisted suicide in the last few years. So what can a Christian response say to all of this? There's much more that could be said, and I've tried to fit in as much as I could in such a short time. The main problems that we see are a lack of autonomy, a lack of dignity. These are the two main reasons people cite for wanting to have euthanasia or assisted suicide. We see feelings of uselessness and worthlessness, and the idea that it's good that someone doesn't exist, or that it's not good that you do exist. Well, Christianity says something quite different, quite radically different. It says that we are radically dependent, but this isn't a bad thing. So most people think they want to commit suicide or have euthanasia because they have lost their dependence. Christianity says, Christi says humans were made to be dependent. We were made to share each, other bur each other's burdens, and there's nothing undignifying about that. In fact, instead, we have dignity not because we are independent, but because we're made in God's image, and we share his image. Christianity says that... It doesn't matter if you can't contribute much to society, if you feel useless. Our value is not dependent on what we can contribute to society or what we can achieve. It's dependent on the fact that we're made in God's image and that each human is made with that image of God that makes them valuable and gives them that overwhelming infinite dignity on which our human rights are based. And finally, Christianity says it's good that you exist. Even if you are going through an extremely difficult time, it's good that you exist. You bear God's image, and you are valuable and worthy. And so the Christian response, as I said, there's much more that could be said and that needs to be said, but the Christian response for all of us is to embody these ideas, these values. It's to change the culture so that dependence is no longer seen as undignifying or useless or a burden, but actually so that the dependence is seen as a normal part of human existence. 
We need to change the culture so that human dignity is seen apart from what we can contribute to society, but it's seen because we are bearers of God's image. And that dignity remains regardless of our circumstances or regardless of our usefulness. And in fact, it's these values which have allowed us to make great strides in palliative care in the last few decades. We've made enormous advances in palliative care in the last few decades, and there's every reason to think that that will continue if we really focus on that and don't take what can be seen as the convenient way out. And so just finishing with what Paul says in Galatians chapter 6, our fundamental duty here is to bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. And so I hope I've given you at least some tools to think about how we can do that. And I'd love to hear any more thoughts you have about how we can do that together. Thank you so much. Thanks, Callum. Um, when he got up to speak, oh, we were talking earlier, and he said, um, I could easily do this session over an hour, the amount of material I have. And so you got a taster uh, there. And so just as we go and maybe just take one or two questions now, um, I'll begin out by pointing that during the break, um, Andy will be over on this little round table over here to your left, and Callum over at this little round table here to your right. So if you have questions for either of them, um, then please do go to them and ask them their questions there. And we'll have other people in pink lanyards there counting the number of people lining up to ask each one of them questions. And whoever has the biggest line gets the largest end-of-year bonus. It's part of a new uh, performance review thing that we're introducing, um, which Callum may feel very strongly about. Um, um, Callum, um, so let me just ask um, the, the one question here. It says, what, would it be more cruel in the eyes of God to prolong the suffering of an individual who is of sound mind than to keep them... Um, and allow them to end their life at a time and manner of their choice. Would you see that? Would it be more cruel? Is it more cruel to prolong someone's life or just allow them? Is it not less cruel, therefore, to... Yeah, no, to let them end it. this is a really good question, and it's, it's somewhat difficult to answer because our natural instinct is to think, surely it's cruel to allow people to suffer. One of the things Jesus said that he would do is to, to wipe away every tear and to heal our suffering. Um, and that obviously gives Christians a good reason to think that God doesn't want our suffering. In Revelation, it says God will wipe away every tear from our eyes. Suffering is not something that God wants. Suffering is an intrusion into the world. And this sets Christianity radically apart from certain other worldviews which say suffering is God's will or suffering is deserved or suffering is illusory. Christianity says suffering is real and it's something that God wants to get rid of and that he will get rid of. The difficulty, of course, with euthanasia is that Christians seem to be saying, we want people to suffer. We want people to remain alive in their suffering. Now, of course, most of us know that that's not what Christians want. It's certainly not what I want. It's certainly not what most doctors want. But the question is, is suffering a reason in favor of ending someone's life? And is it something that over kind of powers or overrides the dignity that their life has and that the value their life has just because they exist. And I think what can be helpful to kind of think about this question is to think about what we would say to someone who is suffering temporarily and we think their suffering is going to get better. When we look at these people's lives, say someone wants to commit suicide and working in psychiatry for a few months, I had many, many patients who wanted to commit suicide. There was no question in the, in the culture of psychiatry when I worked there that it would be good to end their life because we would end their suffering. What we thought instead was we will try our very best 
to improve their life, to make them happy again, to give them things worth living for. And sometimes the difficulty with euthanasia is that we can't see that kind of better time. We can't necessarily picture easing their suffering. But the fundamental principle of Christianity and the fundamental principle for doctors here is that actually people have worth regardless of their suffering and that suffering should be eliminated but not by killing the person. When we work in psychiatry, we think we're not just going to kill someone because they're suffering a lot. We want to do our very, very best to help them. And so even though by helping them and by stopping them committing suicide, we are exposing them to suffering, that's not because we want the suffering and it's not because we're cruel, but it's because we see the dignity of their life and we see a better time for them when they can look back on their suffering and hopefully find some meaning in it. And so what I would say there is that God allows suffering and there's no question that God allows suffering in the world more generally. And that is a talk that could take another half hour or an hour to speak about. God certainly allows suffering, but he allows it because he sees the dignity in us. And he says, I value you and you have dignity even when you're suffering and even when you feel you can't contribute much. And that's better than simply ending your life and giving up on you. And the second thing God says is, I've given you hope that there is a time when I will wipe away every tear. And when you look back at your suffering from that time, it will make sense. And the fundamental picture in the Christian story of this is Jesus' crucifixion. At the time, it seems like God is being cruel. It seems like Jesus' suffering makes no sense. And yet when Jesus looks back on his suffering and he sees the whole story, and when we see the whole story from the end of the story, we see that that extreme moment of suffering was one of the most profound, important, central events in human history. And it's what won salvation for us. And so our hope is that by trusting in Jesus and following him, when we have suffering, we can have assurance that God doesn't want it, that he will get rid of it. But secondly, that when we look back on our suffering from the end, he will have found some way to make it meaningful. And so we can trust in that hope. And that's why I think we can allow suffering in certain contexts, doing our very best to get rid of it, trusting God that he will make it meaningful in the end. I hope that makes some sense. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Christians Engaging Culture. It's important to sharpen one another as a church community, so please discuss this material with your discipleship group or with others after the service. We also provide reflection questions on our website that will enable you to think more deeply about the issue of euthanasia, so you can have more productive conversations with your non-Christian friends. Until next time, always remember that Jesus is a far greater saviour than you are a sinner.